0: From member-supported CPR News, this is Purplish, a show about Colorado politics and democracy. I'm Andrew Kenny here with my colleague Benta Birkeland. Hi, Andy. Hello. We're recording remotely from our respective homes on Thursday, March 4th. Tomorrow is the one-year anniversary of the date the coronavirus was first officially detected here in Colorado. This
1: afternoon, I was notified that we have the first presumptive positive case of novel coronavirus, also known as COVID-19.
0: I know that you're probably hearing and thinking a lot about this anniversary, this awful anniversary of the past year. And we thought it would be an especially important time to look at how Colorado's government and its governor have changed and responded in the face of these circumstances that none of us have ever seen before.
2: Yes, it's really unprecedented. And the pandemic has thrust governors across the country into the spotlight and really at the forefront of managing this crisis. So the first known case of COVID-19 in Colorado was March 5th. And then about a week later, schools started closing. On March 14th, Governor Polis shut down the ski areas. Towards the end of March, he issued a stay-at-home order.
1: We're issuing this stay-at-home order to save lives. To save lives. Could be your aunt or your uncle, could be your parent, could be your grandparent, could be your own life.
2: And then in early April, we had Polis urging everyone to wear a mask at all times outside their homes.
1: So get out those old T-shirts, you know, and be creative about making that into a mask. Cover your mouth, cover your uh, nose, and make sure you can breathe easily. through. You know, it's
0: kind of nose. easy to forget because we've been in this kind of societal semi-lockdown for so long, when it was first coming, it it felt like just hitting the brakes on society, like everything suddenly coming to this screeching halt in a way that was, was totally amazing at the time. Right. And I don't know what it says about me, but when the ski areas closed, that was my big signal, like, oh, hmm. this is getting real. I was in Steamboat Springs at the time. I just remember the grocery store suddenly being ransacked the ski mountain utterly shutting down. Wow. I, I skied the last day of the season, as it turned out, and I was just the only one on the mountain. And I even got to break the news to, it was terrible, to this young couple saying, oh, hey, did you guys hear the whole mountain just shut down uh, in the middle of your like engagement vacation? Oh, wow. So, yeah, truly surreal.
2: Well, I, I agree with the ski area announcement. Even if you don't ski, we were at the height of the winter tourism season, March spring break, yeah. Skiing is iconic for this state. So I think oh, people were shocked when that happened.
0: And, you know, throughout all this, these days and weeks of really sudden and dramatic changes, Governor Polis was the voice and the face of what was really happening.
1: Here in Colorado moments ago, I signed a letter to the president asking him to declare a major disaster area for the state. He told us the numbers. 612 people are currently hospitalized. 77 deaths our hearts go out to the families he told us what was changing uh, i know that there's families hurting uh and it brings a sense of comfort that we're going through this together we'll get through this together we're doing the right
0: bento you got to spend some time with him behind the scenes back then at the beginning of the outbreak and then you actually repeated that by spending a bunch more time with him very recently as well so one year later what was different wh- when you spent time with him this time around
2: Well, in the spring, it was all by phone. Conference calls in his office at the state capitol, in his chief of staff's office. And now it's pretty much all Zoom from his home in Boulder. Hmm. He does not work out of the capitol. He comes about twice a week to the governor's mansion, which is just a few blocks from the state capitol, and it's where he has his media briefings.
0: So the governor, like many people, has transitioned to living that Zoom life. But what I'm really curious about is how is this guy... Leading Colorado now, like one year into this pandemic, what is his style? How is he getting things done, especially like, you know, even within the office of the governor?
2: Right. Well, he says his days start early and end very late, which I think we would expect. In um, his normal business hours, I think, have been pretty consistent since the start of the pandemic, which is full of briefings and planning calls and meetings. And then evenings are when he says he really has time to read things like scientific journals and studies and think deeply and, and make decisions. And he said it's when he goes through all his different graphs and charts and spreadsheets and provide comments.
0: That is a huge part of how Governor Polis has described himself, the big data guy, the chart guy. I'm curious, though, what have you learned about His leadership style, especially behind closed doors, how does he actually get stuff done?
2: I mean, from what I've seen behind the scenes and observing him in meetings, he doesn't come across much different than the person Coloradans see through the briefing room cameras. So he's detail-oriented, numbers-focused. His meetings with his staff, they start, like, right on time and end to the minute on time. (laughs) Really? You know, People have repeatedly said he's extremely calm. Hmm. And his chief of staff, Lisa Kaufman, she's his longest serving employee. She's the person that colleagues say knows him better than almost anyone, his most trusted political advisor. And she really said he is extremely calm and rational. And it, it can even be maddening at times. So he's always on the more optimistic side of any scenario.
3: He always sees the glass half full. But he's also very open and really welcomes debate.
0: So if he's a glass half full guy, are there glass half empty people on his staff? (laughs) Did you get the sense that everyone's always in total agreement?
2: Well, I didn't actually ask anyone like, hey, are you a glass half empty type of person? But um, his chief of staff said in late March when Polis issued this very restrictive stay-at-home order For her, that was the toughest decision the administration has had to make because they're weighing protecting public health and saving lives against the damage to the economy and people's emotional well-being. And some of his senior staff said they did not want Polis to lift that order as soon as Polis did. And... Kaufman said the governor kept telling them, like, look, this is not sustainable.
0: That's interesting because Polis has seemed to me to kind of triangulate and put himself in the middle of the pack of what other governors are doing. I remember, you know, it took a little pressure. It took some other states instituting face mask mandates before Polis did. Uh, Is that an impression that you share, that he kind of floats around the middle?
2: I think so a little bit. I mean, what they said is he'll make his decision based on data. So for the stay-at-home order, his staff said... He saw data that showed proper social distancing would have the same effect as the stay-at-home order. So that's when he lifted the stay-at-home order. And Kaufman said you cannot make an emotional plea to the governor. Huh.
3: You know, there's times in which team members are scared and emotional during uh, periods of this. And the governor is really, you know, mission-focused and data-driven.
2: And so needing to see the data before making a decision is a uh, constant thing. But he does make decisions quickly, and it's a pace that took some getting used to for some of his staff. So Stan Hilke heads the Colorado Department of Public Safety, and he said he's worked for a lot of different leaders. Mm. And he said that Polis' decisiveness and this rapid decision-making made him uncomfortable because he's someone who wants to be very critically thinking about stuff.
0: Well, that's a comment, and sometimes it's a complaint that we've heard from a number of different leaders because the uh, the polis orders can come quick, and you know, he doesn't always give a ton of notice to everybody about what he's going to do next.
2: I, I would just will really quickly add that Hilke said he does feel grateful for that decisiveness now because with the pandemic, a lot of the data on infection rates was lagged by about two weeks. And so when new information came in, you were Hilkie said you were kind of behind already. So he thinks polis had to act quickly.
0: Well, Governor Polis has used that decisiveness to issue a ton of executive orders, hundreds if you include all the extensions and amendments, which is kind of interesting from a governor who politically talks about not really wanting to embrace that kind of executive power that much.
2: Yeah, he actually has that kind of libertarian streak. And Polis told me he believes persuasion may be more important to taming the pandemic than concrete policies. Mm. So all of these scores of broadcast briefings and interviews – Yes, that's his chance to provide hard facts and cajole and explain and then even at times browbeat the public into doing what he hopes they will do. Out,
1: but please don't be stupid. Engage in social distancing. The new guidance is no more than 10 and up.
2: You know, he also added that the policies matter a bit and people focus so much on those like, do you tell people they have to wear masks? Do you close down? But he said, what really matters is, are people wearing masks?
0: Well, I'm of two minds about that because I think it is true that, you know, at least in the U.S., you can't police people into to wearing a mask. But the governor has exercised a lot of the state's power over, like, businesses. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not just suggesting that restaurants not operate at full capacity. They, they'll lose their license. So he's really used the combination of the two. The messaging, yes, but also his executive power.
2: Yes, definitely.
0: So after one year of Polis's pandemic leadership, uh, it seems to me as if there's kind of two angles of criticism of the governor that have developed. The first one... Uh, comes from some of his colleagues on the left, as well as uh, local health officials, local government, and it's this idea that despite his constantly talking about data and and how transparent everything's going to be, sometimes he he's kind of waffled on stuff. It seems, or at least changed the way that he's approaching things. The vaccine timelines have been rearranged a bunch. And also the, the big one that sticks out to me was the the dial that was supposed to determine what restrictions would be in place for different areas was kind of wholesale rewritten so that a bunch of areas that were under heavier restrictions or should have been suddenly qualified for lighter restrictions. The
2: governor addressed that a little bit. He, you know, His staff said that so much new information is coming in at all times and they're updating things. They always want to have more information than they do have. And then for a while, a lot of you know, states are competing against each other and there wasn't a lot of coordination they felt with the federal government just trying to get basic things. So they say it's a fluid situation. and So that's why things have to be tweaked.
0: Yeah. And they've also spoken to some of the complaints from like local health departments who want more heads up on things. Uh, the governor's office has said they basically want to act decisively and not have news leak out a bunch ahead of time. They say they're just trying to keep information uniform basically. Then on the other side, there is the critique, the idea that he's basically been overreaching and overusing executive power. And before we launch into that, I wanted to step back for some perspective. I recently interviewed historian Derek Everett, perfect person for this. He studies the Colorado State Capitol and he's actually been looking into how uh, governors have responded to different emergencies, especially the pandemic a century ago. What he basically said was that Polis has used executive power in a way that we've not really seen in Colorado before.
2: Hmm.
3: The situation that he's responding to is one that Colorado officials really haven't faced in a century. There's not been anything on this statewide level of, of crisis of public health since the influenza epidemic you know governors are used to dealing with things like floods or wildfires or or natural disasters like that that are usually focused in a specific area and there's set patterns of you know who helps out the national guard does this and local communities can be organized to do that We're not necessarily in uncharted waters right now. It's just that we haven't charted them for about a century.
2: Yeah, I think so many people have said this is unprecedented. A governor's never done this before. But it's nice to actually hear that from someone who studies this kind of thing.
0: Well, with that unprecedented crisis, of course, and and that broad use of executive power has come, like we mentioned, some of that backlash.
2: Right. Uh, Republicans and conservatives hosted anti-lockdown protests. And since then, Republican lawmakers have pushed back against Polis's broad use of this executive authority. And they've argued that the legislature should take a bigger role in future emergencies. We have a legislative session that meets four months out of the year. And one idea being floated is that if there is an extended emergency, it could trigger lawmakers returning to the Capitol. So they could be working with the governor to, to pass legislation or to decide where money is going to be spent.
0: Yeah, it's been such a long emergency that it's bridged between two different sessions, which really is not how emergencies usually happen. Uh, this is something, though, this pushback that we're seeing across the country, there's more than 30 different states where there have been legislative efforts to try to rein in the executive. Uh, A lot of that's driven by conservative legislatures fighting back against Democratic governors, Mm -hmm. like in Wisconsin, where the legislature actually voted to repeal the mask mandate, only to have the governor go and reissue it. And then uh, it's also played out in the courts as well, like in Michigan, where the state Supreme Court's really giving Governor Gretchen Whitmer a lot of trouble.
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, it's going to be different in those states that have single-party control like Colorado. Mm. Um, New York is kind of an exception to that right now, um, where the Democratic legislature is moving to rein in some of the powers of Democratic Governor Andrew Cuomo and let them have input on decisions. But that only came about after allegations that Cuomo covered up nursing home deaths.
0: And even then, the restrictions that they're talking about putting on Cuomo aren't very substantial. It's basically saying that the legislature is going to get more input on decisions, and we all know the input doesn't add up to a whole lot of power. Regardless, I don't really see that coming up in a serious way to challenge Polis, at least during this pandemic. But what do you say about what's next?
2: Well, he definitely wants to get through this pandemic. Yeah. We're, we're not through it yet, obviously. I asked him what he remembers most from the last year, and he actually said he doesn't want to remember it at all.
1: This is a year that everybody, especially governors, can't wait to forget. Just a horrible year.
2: And this kind of illustrates the point. I was with Polis at a vaccine clinic, and volunteers there had created a piñata, and it was in the shape <laughs> of the COVID-19 virus. And at one point... They handed Polis this large mock vaccine needle and he took it and he was just whacking the piñata again and again and again and everyone was laughing. (laughs) One of his staffers had to tap him on the arm and just kind of pull him away.
0: (laughs) I'm sorry, that might be one of the most relatable things I've ever heard about Polis. I would love to just... Beat the living daylights out of a coronavirus piñata. But surely he doesn't want to forget everything. We, we actually learned just today that he is engaged, right? That's
2: right. He got engaged to his longtime partner, Marlon Reese. After both Marlon and Polis had COVID-19, there was a point where Marlon's condition was deteriorating. And eventually he did go into the hospital for a couple of days and, and came back and was fine. But it was at that moment when Polis was getting ready to drive him to the hospital that he proposed. I've
1: been thinking about it for a while. I'd ordered the, the rings with a inscription from Isaiah and, and had them you know, hidden and ready to go. And I knew he'd probably get better, but obviously you never know in that situation. I thought now's a good time.
2: Polis also mentioned some other good things that have come out of the pandemic, and he said that, There's been a lot of efficiencies with people working from home and telecommuting and that he thinks people really did find creative ways to stay connected to loved ones with technology. And he just celebrated uh, his cousin's bar mitzvah virtually and obviously the governor, like everyone, is looking forward to seeing family in person again and, and not being so technology driven in our personal lives.
0: Well, I know we've talked about a lot of the newsy angles on the way that the pandemic has changed and surprised us all. But uh, I know that both of us in our reporting for this episode have come across some really unique moments and facts that made us stop and say, wait, what? What?
2: I don't know if it's because we have these moments on the podcast that I, I literally for this moment, as it was happening in real time, did say in my head, wait, what, seriously? <laughs> I was with the governor. We were in this conference room in the governor's mansion where he prepares for his press conferences. And as we're walking out, he said, Oh, I'll show you my kitchen. It's just this tiny little kitchen off the conference room. And he opens his fridge and, you know, he's got some sodas and just a few things in there. And then he shows me there's like five beers. <laughs> and he said, this is left over from the previous governor. <laughs> um, because John Hickenlooper, as people know, brew pub owner enjoys beer. Yeah. And Polis said, it's still here because I don't touch it. And he's going to give it to the next governor.
0: <laughs> I don't think it's going to be any good then.
2: <laughs> you know, that's what, I mean... He, he wasn't sure if beer lasted that long. You know, He only drinks a couple times a year, so it's just still sitting in the fridge. Wow.
0: Well, my wait-what moment came up uh, again in my conversation with historian Derek Everett. And we were talking about how the legislature and the governor in modern times are handling the pandemic versus how it happened back then.
3: A hundred years ago, the state legislature only met every other year. And they did convene. In January of 1919, right in the midst of the influenza epidemic, there was no restrictions. There weren't any requirements for masks or barriers between the legislative desks or anything.
0: And not only do they come into session, but they decide they need to have a joint session with Wyoming. So Wyoming's entire legislature gets on, on their Model Ts or whatever they were driving back then, their covered wagons, horses and donkeys, (laughs) <laughs> Come down and they all gather together just to have the biggest legislative super spreader event that you could possibly conceive.
2: Wow, that's I had no idea we even had joint legislative sessions with neighboring states. So that's that's kind of crazy.
0: You will you will learn a lot more about this in our bonus episode with with Professor Everett. <laughs> oh, there's so many twists to this story. Um, there was a Dr. Fauci of the time who who really. Uh, was the the big voice of pandemic caution and uh, there's a tragic story involving him. And boy, it it was illuminating to hear about how this all played out a century ago.
2: Well, I can't wait to hear it.
0: I should probably finish making it. Well, that is it for this week's episode. Purplish is a production of member-supported Colorado Public Radio. Learn more about becoming a member and join today at CPR.org. I'm Andrew Kenny with my colleague, Benta Berkland.
2: You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Benta Berkland,
0: And I'm at N We'll be back in your podcast feeds next week. Until then, this is Purplish from CPR News.
1: Now, some of you might also know that today is a very special day for nerds like me. It's Star Wars Day. May the 4th be with you. You get it? May 4th. May the 4th be with you. Uh, In addition to bringing joy to billions of people, the Star Wars franchise also offers some relevant and compelling life advice that we can all draw from. The first one. Wear a mask whenever you go out. You know, whether you're on a mission to crush the Rebel Alliance or whether you're just on a mission to the grocery store, wear a mask or facial covering in public to prevent the spread of coronavirus. Darth Vader would be very safe right now despite his pre existing respiratory condition.